So I've just read your book, and it's fascinating. And I have so many questions. Now, you and I are almost peers age-wise, and I feel a, a little bit silly because when I was young, didn't maybe have an exact concrete plan on what I was going to do. And it seems like you didn't necessarily either. And Same. Yet you have arrived kind of at the top. And I wonder if you feel surprised. I never expected to be a host of All Things Considered. When I was a little kid, and this is actually a detail that's not in the book, I would sit in front of these speakers that were in my parents' house in Fargo, North Dakota, that were as tall as I was sitting, and the All Things Considered theme music would air every evening as my mother was preparing dinner. And I, for years, had a Pavlovian reaction to that theme music because I knew it meant it was time to eat. And then when I lived in Portland, Oregon, my first experience working for public radio was volunteering answering phones at the pledge drive for OPB. So the fact that I'm now a host of that show that I listened to when I was a child in Fargo, a teenager in Portland, is kind of hard for me to believe even after more than seven years in this role. You might have heard when you were listening back then, a person who became one of your colleagues, Robert Siegel. And one of the things that I've noticed in my time working in public radio, and you likely have as well, is something I brought up with him, and that is that the news really feels different today. I asked him if he remembered the summer of 2001, let's say, right? Mm. Yeah. And he said yes, and he pointed out something that I had even forgotten, that that summer, the, one of the biggest stories was a surprising number of shark attacks. Shark attacks. <laughs> yes. And that seems- I so, remember that, yes. And it seems so quaint. And so you have oh, spent- totally. You have spent so much now of your professional career in this unrelenting cycle of news. How hard has that been for you to navigate, or has that- given you as somebody who's a hard worker and diligent and just out there telling these stories, has that given you the opportunity to shine? I think, you know, then that what you're saying is true, that the news cycle has accelerated dramatically. Fortunately, All Things Considered remains a two-hour program. And it's a great credit to the people who make the show every day, which includes way more journalists than those you hear on the air, that despite the number of things happening in the world, we still manage to go deep and spend time telling stories. We manage to reflect um, our best days anyway, the full range of human experience, including joy and trauma and surprise and enlightenment. And that was in part what I wanted to capture in this book as well. Even though I've covered wars and revolutions and presidential campaigns and big, heavy, serious stories, I wanted the reader of this book to get a sense of the full sweep of human experience, not just what it feels like to talk to people on the worst day of their lives, which is something that I've also done a fair amount of. Indeed. And it seems to anybody who reads this book that you live a life of stark contrast. On one hand, you might be traveling to do something that is very fun, like singing in a band. On the other hand, you might be traveling to go to a place where you're covering war or disaster, yeah. or you're covering what seems to many people to be the cynical world of politics. Are you naturally, does your personality naturally allow you to handle these contrasts? To me, they always felt like contrasts. I always thought that there was my day job as a journalist, and then the thing I did on the side, singing with this band Pink Martini and going on tour with them and making a cabaret show with the actor Alan Cumming. 
And it was actually the process of writing the book that helped me see that these activities have more in common than you might think on the surface. That fundamentally, they are ways of telling stories and helping people understand people around them who might otherwise seem different and foreign. That's what Pink Martini does when we sing in dozens of different languages. That's what I do when I'm you know, covering the Syrian refugee crisis, talking to migrants in Turkey, making their way to Germany. They're both ways of helping people connect to individuals who might seem different and understand the world and see it through the eyes of somebody else. You are someone who has lived openly as gay for your entire adult life in an atmosphere in which, while yes, that is becoming much more accepted in arenas in which it formerly was not, you still have to cover the news even to this day when the stories are often about backsliding when it comes to, say, civil rights and so forth. As as a journalist, of course, you say this in your book, objectivity is relevant to any conversation about journalism. You managed to do this, but how hard is that for you to do? I find that one of the helpful tools is to look to history. And I see throughout the generations that LGBTQ people have always had to deal with adversity. Society has always made it difficult for LGBTQ people to exist and flourish and thrive. And I take comfort in the fact that whether we are talking about, you know, Oscar Wilde or Marsha P. Johnson or Harvey Milk or any of these other trailblazers, they have all not only managed to exist, but live joyfully despite that adversity. And so I think with so many of these questions, perspective is everything. And knowing history um, helps pull back the camera a little bit and, and, and contextualize things in a way that at least helps me better understand the debates we're having in any given moment. You say in your book that the best journalists are people who always want to learn more, who enjoy the feeling of moving from ignorance or confusion to understanding. I wonder if you also feel that the best people in general are that way, too. I have great respect for people who are absolute experts in their field. And when I say absolute experts in their field, what I mean is they have deep, deep knowledge about a specific thing. That's never been me. I have very, very shallow knowledge about very, very many things. And so, yes, I I think curiosity is a really important value. But I wouldn't say that to be an interesting person, you have to graze as widely as I graze. I think there's also something to be said for obsessive learning about one thing. That just happens not to be the way I'm built. You say that you were hoping that you could be a part of a new generation of journalists with the power to nudge the industry and shape it from the inside and make space for people like you. And NPR, I think, sounds different from how it sounded, say, 25 years ago. Do Mm -hmm. you feel that it is on track to better represent the people that it's covering and, and you feel good about the progress that's been made in your time? 
I do, but I also want to recognize that I'm walking in the footsteps of people who changed journalism to better reflect who they were. I mean, Susan Stamberg was the first woman ever to anchor a nationally broadcast nightly news program. That was revolutionary in its time. And so I don't think that what I and others in my cohort are doing is completely different. I think it's a continuation. And I think journalism has to constantly evolve to reflect the world that we exist in. But we have been evolving from the very beginning. And so I'm honored to keep carrying that torch forward. But I know that I took that torch from somebody behind me and I'm going to pass it along to somebody up ahead. Well, that's great to hear. Ari Shapiro is the author of a new memoir, The Best Strangers in the World. Thanks so much for talking to me this afternoon. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me.